0: You're listening to the Onside Podcast, the podcast for innovation driven entrepreneurship here in Atlantic Canada. I'm your host, Alex McCann. This is season two, and the theme this month is equitable and innovative partnerships and deep learning. I'm joined today by Michael Marcel Pollock, also known as Gana Gawatrita. Hopefully, I've gotten that somewhat okay, which means Little Dipper in Mohawk from the Bear Clan. He's dedicated to fostering indigenous pathways to solve global problems through his gift of two-eyed seeing. He's working to incorporate Haudenosaunee great peace into modern innovation frameworks such as design thinking, human-centered design, and agile to develop what he calls Creation centered design and is committed to helping organizations around the world and communities reconcile different ways of thinking using indigenous worldviews and others. All right, Michael, welcome back to the show. Happy to have you here with us again. Last time you were here with us, you were talking a little bit about your journey towards entrepreneurship. And uh, this go around, we're going to be talking about a few different things around innovative partnerships and deep learning. So welcome back to the show. yowen thank you for having me. Okay, awesome. Well, uh, we had a chance to share a little bit about your background, and we heard a little bit about this also in our previous uh, episode. And I'm really excited to learn a little bit more about what you're doing now. In uh, You have a new business, new consulting practice, and I uh, want to hear a little bit more about your company, uh, which is called Aguego. Yep. Did I get it right? You did. Oh, <laughs> oh, good, good. I got it right. Okay. Aguego, And um, it's a new company, new business, or not new, but relatively relatively new and you're just kind of getting started helping people to understand the world through a different perspective. So what are some things that you're focused on with your business and what are you up to there? It's
1: it's really interesting because that it seems to be evolving. Initially my vision for this was really to think about all the things that I had been doing that seemed to increasingly be in demand. But I've been doing them for a long time just Mm -hmm. uh, as part of service to community and maybe a little bit of what I feel compelled uh, as a commitment to try to create social change and find allies Mm -hmm. and move to a more unified community and move closer to reconciliation. And So I've been doing these things and I started to do a little bit of an audit myself of Mm. where I was investing this energy and, and how that was taking shape. What did that look like? And it was a lot of delivering of messages to help people try to understand indigenous worldviews. And then it was taking shape in a lot of consultation around um, helping organizations think about what they would refer to as indigenous strategy.
0: Mm, mm -hmm.
1: Indigenous strategy for business development, indigenous strategy on recruitment and retention, indigenous strategy on diversity inclusion practices and, and leadership principles and things like this. And uh, when I did this audit, I realized last year I had a lot of those conversations. Mm. And so I thought, I think it's important to really create an opportunity for more organizations to engage with me and and find someone. Because when I was talking to a lot of um, leaders and companies, it seemed like it was not always understood or easily accessible, Mm -hmm. I think, some Mm -hmm. some of this knowledge and, and some of the things that we've been brought on to talk about so that's really what we do like my passion is looking at problems complex problems and trying to bring my perspective and indigenous knowledge and perspectives to try to help design better solutions mm-hmm. and I I was I think narrow-minded in my focus of thinking this is going to be just about diversity and inclusion mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it end up evolving into something that is crossing over into all those areas that I was just referencing and really, really broad kind of broad sense of everybody wants to do this to some extent. Nobody really knows where to get started. Mm. And there's, I think, a little bit of fear and reluctance amongst executive leadership and organizations of maybe saying or doing the wrong thing in the approach. And so we really step in to help try to provide clarity around that. Mm
0: -hmm. And Agwegon, what does that mean? Is that a Mohawk word?
1: Yeah, yeah, it is. And it goes back to some of our guiding principles. Agwego in uh, Mohawk, it means all of us, Mm. like all of us together. I like that. I like that. So it's thinking like the work that we're doing, Mm -hmm. it tends to be separated into we're a company or we're people and we need to understand you we need to understand indigenous people mm-hmm. and there's a separation of of mm-hmm. in a sense mm-hmm. so when i was thinking about the work that we do and i was thinking about that thing like oh, okay but this isn't about us and them this is about like the underlying message of Hodenosaunee teaching is a message of unity so it's about all of us it's about all of us coming together and bringing the uniqueness and the gentleness of our minds together to find the best ideas in the room that create the best solutions that move things forward for all of us, and not just all of us as humans, but all of us, like all things in creation.
0: I love that. agüego, all of us, all of us together. And I can hear as you're talking through that, because I've heard you talk before, and some of you're thinking you're very interested in this idea of collective wisdom and bringing people together to create new thoughts, new ideas, new disruptions, all of those kinds of things. So I love that name for your what you're doing. I think that's great. And you know, we talked a little bit um about some of the work that you're doing and then with Aguego, you're really interested in this idea of leveraging indigenous pathways to solve global problems. You've kind of talked about that. And there's this notion around two-eyed seeing, mm. which is getting a little bit more prominence or prevalence. A new—I would say new, but a maybe new to a lot of folks who are not indigenous—way of kind of looking at the world. Can you talk a little bit about for our listeners who've not heard about two-eyed seeing? What is two-eyed seeing, and and how is that different from kind of I don't know the Western way of looking at the world and trying to solve problems?
1: Yep, and. I must give credit to the thought leader of this concept of two-eyed seeing, which is Elder Albert Marshall from Mímagi. And, you know, to quote him on this, he would say that our efforts to, this is really about our efforts to restore harmony in our relationship with the environment. And in order to do that, we need to understand our relationship with the environment and then we need to transcend our individualistic desire you know and so it was really designed from that perspective and specifically elder marshall created this to help the young people young indigenous people reconnect with their identity so those that feel disconnected because they are of mixed ancestry or have not had exposure to mm. knowledge uh, traditional knowledge about the land and, and, and um, they've been deprived of that mm. and this is um, also a tool that was to be used to, to help people reconnect with it and there's really eight core principles to two-eyed seeing mm-hmm. and I'll just run through them relatively quickly here but number one the need to declare author positionality number two communication of the group's interpretations to everyone involved in the decision-making process. So communication of two-eyed seeing interpretations and guiding principles, ensuring everyone understands those. The third is about relationship building.
0: Mm.
1: Uh, The fourth is around inclusion and indigenous advisory. Mm. It's the involvement of groups of elders, knowledge keepers, and and other uh, indigenous thought leaders in the process of design. Continued community guidance. So this concept of like, continued consent, and the use of traditional knowledge and knowledge, traditional knowledge-gathering techniques, and collaborative community-involved data analysis and interpretation, and lastly, making meaningful and lasting relationships. And those, are, as Elder Marshall would define, are kind of eight mm-hmm. principles required if people would like to adopt this two-eyed seeing. And interesting, two-eyed seeing isn't necessarily always just about indigenous mm-hmm. Someone like me, you know, who's Mohawk and Polish. Mm-hmm. Anyone who has had this lived experience where they've walked in two worlds and <laughs> see two different perspectives has this ability for two-eyed seeing. So mm. yeah.
0: Yeah, I think I might have mentioned this. There's a really interesting book. I will not remember the author at this exact moment, but uh, I'll I'll try to remember it. Maybe I'll put it up on our blog or something like that. <laughs> uh, uh, it's called Towards Braiding. Um, and um, it's about kind of a, a, an indigenous way of looking at the world where things are weaving together and moving compared to maybe the Canadian or the Western way, which is very sort of logic, hard facts, like very, I don't want to say data, but a different sort of way. And the need to kind of braid or bring these two ways of thinking together. So it hasn't say specifically two eyed seeing. But I yes. I think that there's some truth in that. And I guess, you know, in our modern world with more and more people kind of coming together and recognizing that there are so many different people and ways of understanding the world that it's very useful to have these kind of frameworks for some of maybe the, the Western thinkers who need, need to have the frameworks and the things laid out and, and others to kind of realize that there are different ways of approaching a problem or thinking about a problem.
1: Yeah. And I think it's also important to establish that the suggestion here is that is not that indigenous people have everything figured out, even as it relates to things that maybe we are experts in our domain around, like, let's say, connecting with land or Mm -hmm. things like this. But it's that there's a tremendous amount of knowledge that has been devalued. Mm. And in fact, forced underground, like in my community, you would be persecuted for sharing these ideas that we talk about openly today. And so even now, there's a, a mistrust amongst knowledge keepers that we don't share a lot of our teachings because historically. it, was, it You'd it be was, punished. Yeah. And now there's kind of a mistrust around. Well, like these are our treasures. And so we must be careful about who we share these with. What is in their heart? What is their intention? Mm-hmm. Right. Is this exploitive? Is this. And so it's not that we have everything figured out, but but there's a huge accumulation of knowledge that translates into better design, better solutions, and it's about blending them. There's mm-hmm. great ideas that exist in Western ideology and colonial science, and there's there's good stuff there too, mm-hmm. but... It's better on both sides when you find the things that mm-hmm. braid or intersect mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and can help create and design things that are better for everyone.
0: Mm. Well, that that's a kind of a perfect segue to the next thing that I wanted to get into, with the work that you're doing now. You and I know you've been really interested in kind of ways of thinking and solving problems, design thinking, and and some of these other kinds of things. And you've developed a sort of your own um, methodology or, or way of approaching these kinds of situations with something that's now called creation-centered design. And uh, you've been working on this and uh, have worked with clients and executives to kind of understand this way of thinking. What What is creation-centered design?
1: So I think it will help people understand more if I provide a little context. So when I entered well, the innovation space mm-hmm. and I started working in accelerators and incubators and even when I did my graduate studies, which was a master's of innovation and I'm working with people that are in in that ecosystem. And you learn all the design tools and you learn design thinking and you learn agile frameworks for working and project management. There's this on kind of like the user interface, user experience side, there's a terminology and a filter that gets put on things to help guide some of the work and that is Many people are probably familiar with this who are in the space, which is really what's called human-centered design. Mm -hmm. So that's that approach to problem solving, which, you know, it's commonly used in management frameworks, but human involvement is typically the core function or feature of that. So it takes place by observing problems within the context and conceptualizing things that would be good for humans generally. And the next layer of that that i've observed and i started to kind of gain exposure to this when google sidewalks labs was mm-hmm. going to be building out
0: toronto, toronto waterfront yeah.
1: and uh, a lot of the design team there you know Google's really forward thinking in the space and everything that they were talking about was universal design so kind of universal design it's really about designing an environment so that it can be accessed and understood and used by all people, regardless of age, race, size, or ability. Okay, so it's this concept of designing things to meet the needs of all people, who wish to use it and if an environment is accessible and usable and convenient and a pleasure to use then everyone benefits and you consider the diverse needs and abilities all throughout the design process then universal design creates products and services and environment that meet all people's needs or as many people as possible through the design process right so that's kind of considered at the up until this point that's like the best design mm-hmm. and as I started to think about that and I started to gain exposure to more traditional indigenous teachings and really understand like the core principles of the core message from my community, which we refer to as Guyana Rankoa. And it really that translates to the great peace. Mm-hmm. But within that great peace, there's just like a whole set of more principles, guiding principles that remind us how to interact with each other and to interact with nature. And I started to think about that because the entire real message in that is that in order to achieve peace and unity, you have to understand that there's things outside of humanity, that we are not the core, we are not the center. And when we design things, we shouldn't design things with humans only at the center. Mm. Um, And even in good design, like universal design, it's still about how do we satisfy access, creating access to all types of humans Mm -hmm. creation centered design is really about taking those concepts and taking them a step further by layering in principles from those Haudenosaunee teachings around the great peace and so it's humans attempting to the best of a team's ability to design solutions that are good for all things in creation and so we observe the way that we've organized our relationships both economic and environment and we observe that there's flaws there and it seems that in many ways, we're continuing to repeat the same cycle and creating worse situations for ourselves and for the environment. And so the fact that we've been designing solutions with humans at the center of our existence, this to me, it feels like it has a parasitic nature
0: mm-hmm.
1: about the way that we've engaged our relationships. And But when we design solutions in a way that recognizes that we're one part of of the whole of creation, it seems to to me to become more possible that we can start to move towards a more symbiotic relationship. Mm. And so it's adding that filter onto the design process early on in the process. And I'll just say lastly, this is more work. Mm -hmm. It's more challenging. Just the way that the difference between trying to create a solution generally for humans, to try to create something that is accessible for all humans, requires a whole bunch more research and understanding about how the systems design work and how all the nodes and functions interact, creation-centered design is even harder because with humans, you can go and do human-centered research. You can do primary research, you can conduct surveys. It's a little bit more challenging to understand how something impacts birds, the water, the air, you know how design elements impact fish. Mm-hmm. You have to really start to think about things, and you can't interview. So you've got to kind of go to some balance of traditional knowledge on it, and mm-hmm. some balance of scientific understanding and data to find. Okay, how does this thing that we're designing impact that 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 that? How is it good for that 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 that?
0: Mm. Uh, what What would be uh, an example? I feel like maybe you might have shared something with me before, maybe around. Uh, you know, like if someone's considering uh, developing a building or placing something, like what would be an example of um, a way you could apply the creation-centered design sort of thinking?
1: Okay, so I'm playing with this idea right now and it's really around green roofs, green roof initiatives. And, you know, I'm looking at some of the climate goals that are happening let's just take HRM you know the municipality here so you know there's kind of climate goals big broad bold goals around how to create green urban spaces and green buildings so a lot of that effort is really focused on maybe doing kind of a carbon audit Mm -hmm. you know energy audit um, thinking about maybe the materials that are, are being built in buildings and where buildings are built in proximity and transportation to help limit the need to drive mm-hmm. really far. And, you know, mm-hmm. that, that creates a you know kind of greener sense for humans. But I am fixated on the greening of unused roof space. And if we go back to our last, our last conversation mm-hmm. about where I'm from, mm-hmm. being the most biodiverse area in Canada, The landmass covers only 1%, but it's the most biodiverse. Uh, Right outside my window, there's a strip. It's about 2 feet wide by 16 feet long. Mm -hmm. And it's a strip of green roof, kind of like out my window, a little garden. Mm -hmm. And over the last year, I've watched so many birds and insects interact with that bees, Mm -hmm. that small strip of green space. And so part of like green design and these bold goals that the municipality has, to me, I feel like while it's important to design buildings that are, you know, up to code and standard and thinking about materials and how people travel to and from them as it relates to work, it seems really easy to think about how greening every roof, unused roof in Halifax, it doesn't take um how do I explain? The benefits of doing this are good from an efficiency standpoint. So they make the building warmer in the winter. They keep it colder in the summer mm-hmm. through the insulation process. Uh, they warm down, the, they cool off the city more during times where it's hot. Uh, so there's an insulation piece there and an efficiency uh, quotient that is met by doing this. So you get water retention, you get an environment for an ecosystem or a biodiverse ecosystem to exist you get this element of just overall good living and wellness for community when they're surrounded by green things you know you create a mini economy through the installation and the process of installing these green roofs and you're able to achieve a lot of what the community's goals are simply by interacting with plants and placing them in this space so you're kind of like restoring native plant species, you're increasing biodiversity, you're increasing efficiency of buildings, and you're doing it in a sustainable way. Like the materials used in this case are plants, soil, and there's kind of like a retention tray is really the only uh, you know alternative material that's used. And so, you know, when I think about that, I think about the pros and cons. And one of the cons would be, I think really, I haven't observed many others. One of the cons would be an additional cost to a building owner that they don't necessarily have otherwise but the overall benefit to society and creation seems to trump all of that like there the, there's only really a cost barrier to this and that's not even that significant so when i think about the city's approach to design currently I can't figure out for the life of me why this isn't being explored at like at a deeper level, you know?
0: Mm -hmm. Interesting. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I think the um, creation-centered approach will be really interesting, you know, adding on to kind of new ways of sort of approaching a problem or thinking about how to design a solution that um, has a broader approach so, I think that's really interesting. I personally love uh, green roofs, like the more the more the merrier, I think the more the merrier if we can see what the social uh, benefit and the um uh, environmental benefit from these things and having people enjoy them is is going to be great. I was hoping you can kind of tell us a little bit more about some of the indigenous practices that you use in Agwego or other things, uh, such as storytelling and gathering of the minds, truth sharing. Mm. Like what are some of those practices and are those related to the creation center design or are they elements of that?
1: Yeah. You know, I wanted to be cautious about confusing Folks that wanted to engage with us with these terminologies. But I also want to think about how to indigenize the way that we work uh, and put that out into the world as well. And so, storytelling culturally, it's mm-hmm. something that comes very naturally to those that have that gift. But storytelling is really just the delivery of messages that help people reconcile these ways of thinking. So, I just, the simple way to think about what we do in that case is. As an example, I would explore and examine a company's culture Mm -hmm. and core values. And then I would go back in my mind and my references to traditional teaching. And I would find where indigenous teaching from thousands of years ago articulates very common uh, overarching or related or braided Mm -hmm. principles and values that exist within a company. And we try to do that to show people again to bring that unity in a sense and and help people understand like just an example which would be the matriarchy in my community and women in leadership Mm -hmm. and women in governance and the role that is played and then what is more common today which is the desire to advance women in leadership women on board positions Mm -hmm. women in entrepreneurship and Restoring women's place Mm -hmm. in that decision-making leadership level, you know. In my community, we would say when we lost our way is when we moved away from listening to women. Mm. And when we found our way and came to find peace, it was a woman who first heard with open ears the message of peace Mm. that was being delivered by one of our leaders Mm -hmm. and encouraged him to go on a mission to spread that. Mm -hmm. And so a community that's always been led by women and now uh, the recognition by the mainstream Western world, business world that women make great leaders Mm -hmm. and produce better results. And when people hear that, it kind of creates this alignment, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. and I especially see the women leaders that are in the audience and on the panel kind of, if it's the first time they're hearing that or understanding it being like, yeah, that's right, you mm-hmm, know, and
0: mm-hmm.
1: we can get behind that for sure. Mm-hmm. And that's always existed. You know, we were told that that was wrong.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But now it's becoming more mainstream. And so we tell the story of how those practices and the woman's role and the, the stories behind that. And, and that kind of helps people reconcile these two ways of knowing to find value. And that's kind of what we do with storytelling. Mm-hmm. Simple way. It's just kind of like an event series. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Gathering minds is really more about sprints Mm -hmm. so like design sprints Mm -hmm. and so we would take a design sprint or a rapid decision making sprint or you know one of these kind of innovation functions and and tools but then we would also blend them with those indigenous filters the Mm -hmm. creation center design filter the you know some of these indigenous principles to decision making and governance that help that process of teamwork and team focused kind of Deep work. And then truth sharing is more one on one counsel. It's more one on one coaching. I'm finding more and more leaders are curious. They're wanting to engage with Indigenous communities and they're starting to see value in Indigenous knowledge and teaching for their leadership Mm -hmm. skills and practices. They're on their journey towards understanding and moving closer to reconciliation. They're understanding that there's a responsibility and time and energy that they need to invest in it. It's challenging sometimes to establish trust in a community. And I think, again, there's that fear and reluctance to kind of know how to engage and how to approach. Mm -hmm. And so we try to make that easier by saying, this is open, this is our style of doing it. Um, And it's really kind of just a a series of trying to understand what challenges a, a leader is focused with, where they're coming from, what are their core principles that guide their leadership mm-hmm. and their style and offering them suggestions and teachings from indigenous culture that may have the potential to help them mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. they you know continue to move forward throughout the world
0: well, it sounds like really, really deep work. <laughs> it sounds like really deep work. I'm really uh, uh, grateful, actually, that you're you, you've decided to go on this path, and I think that you're you're right. Um, you know, people in the last few years are definitely much more open to. Looking at the world in a in a slightly different way and bringing different, we talked about two-eyed, seeing different ways of thinking and understanding the world to try to solve the complexity that is out there, which is uh, sometimes, sometimes just sort of overwhelming. So I think it's really great that you're here and you're working with folks who are trying to at least take those very first steps to kind of tackle tackle some of those issues. And um, it's a first kind of journey. I was going to ask you a different question, but I think I'm going to, because I, I feel like this is a, a useful question. And, you know, at on-site we're focused on inclusive innovation and entrepreneurship. And we're really excited in our second season that we have here, really talking about our culture of innovation. Like, what does that mean? Uh, what are different ways to approach this? And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit or, or touch a little bit on Why inclusive innovation and entrepreneurship is important? Like, why is that something that's important or should be important to us, especially maybe nowadays?
1: I really, as I think about that, I would be forced to look around and observe where we are today and understand that. A lot of the things that we struggle with today or that we've struggled with over the last decade, there are, you know, just like looking around and you could see that 2021 at one point seemed like half the world was on fire. And I mean like literally on fire, right? Like forest fires were burning from Vancouver to Russia and uh, at a scale that we've not yet seen. And I think about water and access to things like, like clean drinking water and... And I think about what we're we're in an environmental crisis is a climate crisis, realistically. And it's not uh, knocking at the door like it's already in the house. And so I think about what the world would look like if indigenous worldviews and principles and concepts had been adopted a long time ago,
0: mm-hmm.
1: like 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. And when I think about that, I see that little piece of land that is an old growth forest with the most biodiversity that exists anywhere in Canada. And I see that compounded times Mm -hmm. a thousand all over Canada. Mm -hmm. And I'll also say that community, it's a, one of the most economically developed in Canada, self-sufficient, strong balance sheet, profitable. And so it's, it's not just like, green and preserved and land stewarded well it's also showing that a model exists where you can prosper economically and still preserve the environment in a mm-hmm. way that's imperative mm-hmm. for future generations like just the principle that might not be so commonly known but it, it is uh, commonly expressed even not just amongst Haudenosaunee communities but many indigenous communities which is this concept of a uh, seventh generation principle, mm. seventh generation thinking and designing things and making decisions based on seven generations into the future, not seven decades, mm-hmm. seven generations. And you know that thought process and where we would be today, uh, and, and I just see, I, I see all the prosperity that exists today, just a lot more harmony, mm. a lot more overall good living and mm-hmm. wellness, a lot more unity. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I think inclusion is important to innovation and all things. And that's why I think specifically indigenous inclusion is important in these spaces because the alternative is what seems to be something that is not symbiotic and not harmonious. And it seems to have create this sense of, if you think too much about it, it's a sense of hopelessness around where we're headed, mm. you know, this. So indigenous Inclusion in the innovation space, I have hope now moving forward because I'm seeing more of it happening. Mm-hmm. And I know that there's still the potential and the opportunity to have more of a symbiotic relationship with one another and with all these things in creation, design better solutions, and um, think about things differently. You know, the, the way that we've been doing things and the way we've organized our relationships to this point, environmental and economic something about it seems broken. Mm -hmm. And so we need an adjustment there. And the best way to adjust it is to bring new ideas and new knowledge into the equation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of that untapped knowledge that exists in the Indigenous community.
0: Wow. Well, I'm going to end it on that note. I felt that that was like a super, super powerful Statement. I really appreciate you sharing that um, perspective with us, and I do think you're right. We're we're at this moment where we need great thinking, new ways of looking at things, whether it's environmental or climate change or social social problems. That you know things are too complex for any one group of people to have every single answer. And this idea of community knowledge influencing how we live and work and create new companies and new businesses. I like that seven generation kind of thinking. I think maybe uh, you're right. Maybe if we'd been thinking seven generations of thinking like 100 years ago, maybe we wouldn't be in this climate crisis. But I think we have an opportunity for uh, uh, hopefully some some smart people with good ideas and design solutions and things like that. will be thinking of some ways to hopefully get us back on the right path. So with that, I want to thank you so much for joining us uh, again at the OnSide podcast. It's been really, really wonderful to have you here. As always, how can folks who want to learn more about Aguegon, what you're doing, or you, how can people connect to you?
1: Yeah, the best means to reach me is on LinkedIn. I'm on there as Michael Miracle-Polak. Mm-hmm. Also, Aguago has a presence on LinkedIn, and, you know, I'm posting a blog every month, which is really just... Uh, capturing some more of these type of thoughts and thinking about solutions and reflections, and just trying to come up with some really, I'm looking around at what everyone else is putting out there into the world and trying to to present something a little bit different. And so blogs, concepts, principles that are industry-specific to help guide people as we're all on this journey together.
0: Okay. Well, that's great. And I just want to thank all of our listeners uh, for tuning into the Onside Podcast today. Uh, To connect with us, you can uh, go to our website onsitenow.ca. You'll also find our inclusive innovation monitor there as well. So you can learn about what's going on. And as we come to a close, I'd really like to thank Communities, Culture and Heritage for your support. We're so grateful for your support and helping us make this podcast. Thanks so much. And we'll see you guys next time. This has been a Podstarter production.